welcome to Little Bodies, Mighty Hormones, a podcast that delves deep into the world of pediatric weight management and hormone health. Join me, Dr. Rinkumera, as I embark on a journey to unravel the mysteries of these tiny bodies with enormous potential. Here, I will guide you through the intricacies of nurturing healthy lifestyles, fostering hormonal balance, and empowering our youngest generation to thrive. So whether you're a concerned parent, a healthcare professional, or simply curious about the wonders of pediatric health, you're in for an enlightening ride. Stay tuned for expert insights, inspiring stories, and actionable advice to help our little ones reach their full potential. Let's embark on this empowering journey together. Thanks everybody for joining today. We are going to talk in our healthy eating series today. And last week we had Dr. Wadley on talking about healthy eating in toddlers. And today we have Dr. Barron's on discussing healthy eating in teens. So Dr. Barron's, if you could introduce yourself to everybody. Yeah, of course. So I'm Dr. Barron's. I'm a family physician in Houston, Texas, and I have a private practice. And so I see babies and teens and adults of okay. all ages. Great, great. And thank you so much. And let me know, tell us a little bit about what you do on a regular basis. What is your practice primarily focused on? Yeah, so I do primary care, but I have quite a large population of patients who have either a history or of an eating disorder or have recently recovered from an eating disorder, and I'm providing their primary care services. So I have a lens of looking at that population when I'm approaching any patient for primary care and making sure that we're being mindful of, you know, not providing triggering responses and sort of being compassionate and mindful of the trauma history or eating disorder history okay. that I think. Okay. And this is a really important topic for all teenagers and for all kids really in general. But so I want to talk to you a little bit about your approach to healthy eating. You know, the typical questions that I get, and you know, I'm on the other end of the spectrum when I see patients. So I see patients who have either a history of prediabetes or diabetes, or they're at risk of developing diabetes, or they have PCOS. And I'm often counseling them with regards to food and food choices and lifestyle. So tell us a little bit about your approach to that. And, and the second part of that question is, how do you, you know, bring this up to teens in a way that is respectful and doesn't trigger anything? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I think it's super important, even in the population you're describing, actually, a lot of the patients that I see as adults that develop their eating disorder in adolescence, which is a very common time for developing any disorder, had PCOS or had, you know, some other health issue in which they were trying to manage that by, by adjusting their diet or by adjusting their exercise. And, you know, I think there's a lot of well-meaning advice that we give to teens, but adolescence is such a challenging time mentally and there's so much change in your body that a lot of body image issues can easily be brought up when we start making comments about adjusting dietary or exercise habits. And so I think, you know, what the approach that I try to take in a client that or in a patient that is coming in with prediabetes or PCOS is trying to focus on the behaviors And then what are the behaviors that would be most helpful for reducing insulin resistance, reducing rather than focusing on weight or calories, 
or specific types of food. Because certainly diet plays a role in in all these conditions, but there's a lot of other behaviors that do as well, like getting adequate sleep, you know, being physically active. And that doesn't mean necessarily just exercise, but just Mm -hmm. moving around throughout the day and then managing stress, you know, so just kind of talking about where they are with all these things and from their perspective and not making any assumptions. I think what we see a lot is when someone is, you know, classified as overweight, there's an assumption that they are not eating properly. And this is why that they are overweight. But that's very often not the case. And, you know, our weight is determined by a lot of factors, genetic, other environmental things. Diet is just one small part of that. And a lot of assumptions are made in approaching these patients that you must be doing this, you must be doing this to have your weight look like this or to have your have prediabetes or have, you know, high cholesterol or whatever it is. So I think we have to approach the patient from their perspective, ask about what their current behaviors are and without making assumptions. And then from there, we can kind of talk about what might be some changes we could make to bring okay. you in a healthier So direction. I, I want to just elaborate a little bit on that because I'm getting a lot of comments here. First of all, thanking you for bringing, you know, this up and for discussing this. But, you know, I think we want to focus on the behaviors, right? So the behaviors that are going to change and how do we focus on what those behaviors are and how do we change them? Because a lot of times I hear from parents that, you know, I tell my teens to do this and they do the exact opposite, right? Not just about eating, but about anything like, you know, wear sunscreen. No, I don't want to. So, you know, what is your approach to that piece of it? How do we motivate our, our teens when we talk about, you know, getting enough sleep or being physically active? What do we say? Yeah, I think, you know, teens are, they're not adults yet, but they often think of themselves as adults. And I think we have to treat them with their respect and the the understanding of like, you you have goals for yourself. You have things that you want to do for yourself. And that those goals are motivating your behaviors. And so what are your goals? What is it that you want for your life, for your health, for your, you know, for after school, for, you know, for whatever it is. And then how can we work together to help you reach those goals? Like what behaviors are you doing right now that maybe aren't bringing you closer to reaching the goal that you have for yourself? And what could we possibly change? And I think giving them a little bit more agency and a little bit more autonomy, like especially nowadays, teens are just constantly Mm -hmm. being told what to do. They have to be in school and then they have to be in activities and they have to do this and they have to do this for their college application. They have to make this grade. It's extremely stressful. And I think we have to give them back some of their own agency and own autonomy to make their own decisions about what it is they want. And a lot of times they do have goals for themselves. It's not that they are floating aimlessly through life, but if we don't allow them to make their own choices and to make their own mistakes and we're forcing things on them constantly, it's very challenging to ever make any progress because they're going to resist that. They're going to resist that Mm -hmm. controlling ceiling that they're getting. And so we want to give them back some of that control and help guide them in things that they may be doing that maybe are less helpful for their overall goal. And kind of work with them. So, you know, say I have a teen that has prediabetes, right? You know, my goal as a physician is to prevent prediabetes. Our first goal is always to focus on lifestyle and say, what can we change with lifestyle, right? I actually had a patient this week whose mom said to me, we really want to prevent prediabetes, but she needs to want to do this for herself, right? And so, you know, how do we approach healthy eating for teens? What is your advice for that? You know, the teen doesn't like vegetables, doesn't like, you know, certain 
types of protein. And so how do we encourage our teens to, to change some of that or to motivate them? Because this toddlers, I mean, we hear about these toddlers who are picky, but what do we do when they're older, 13, 14, 15, and there's still some of the foods that are leading to weight gain? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I think, again, we have to start with what the patient's goal is. And certainly it's challenging when it's child because the parent's goals may not be aligned with the kid's goals and the kid's goals, they may not understand the bigger picture. Like you and I and the parents understand why prediabetes is a concern and something that we want to address, but they may not understand that necessarily. So, so sometimes talking about like, what are your goals for your life? What would you like things to look like for you as you get older? Here are that, here are some realities with your numbers, you know, and this is, something that can be genetically predisposed and something that lifestyle affects. We can't change your genes, but we can change some things in your lifestyle to try to help you have a better outcome here. What are some things that you think that you could do? I think also important to mention here is a lot of teens who do live in larger bodies and have family members who have struggled with diabetes, have been on diets, they have observed that behavior and they may already mm-hmm. be engaging in some eating disorder behaviors that mm-hmm. are affecting them. And screening for that is super important. So there's several validated screening tools that you can be used for, for eating disorder behaviors. The most commonly used one that I've heard of is the scoff, but there's others as well. And I think screening for those behaviors and being aware because it's going to be very challenging to make any progress in lifestyle change if someone is dealing with an eating disorder. And, you know, we know that children as young as six who have observed or have experienced, you know, comments about their body start having thoughts of wanting to lose weight as young as six. And so dieting behaviors can start very early and dieting behaviors can be really problematic for prediabetes and diabetes because there is that inconsistency of intake. So there's maybe dieting and restriction, and then there may be compensatory binging or there may be binging and then purging. Like a lot of these things that can be going on it's not as simple as like eat different food. It's, there's a lot of behaviors that have to be considered. And so really kind of screening for that and getting them appropriate help if they do have eating disorder behaviors because it's, you're not going to make any progress until the eating disorder is. Yeah, so that's a really important topic. I'm glad, you, I'm glad you brought that up, that children of younger six are recognizing that they, you know, may have to go, you know, may have to diet. And that, so I think as parents and as pediatricians, how do we address that? Because as pediatrician, you know, the height and weight is really measured at every visit, right? And so sometimes I've had parents say to me, well, my kid doesn't even want to come into the pediatrician's office because they don't want us to talk about their weight. And, you know, then we have the AP guidelines that are saying we need to address some of these things earlier. And then myself as a pediatric endocrinologist, I worry about you know, the onset of diabetes, and I'm seeing it as young as eight-year-old, whereas I never used to see it before, type 2 diabetes. And so how do we address some of these, you know, concerns with regard to, to weight without precipitating an eating disorder? And in, you know, child of younger six or seven, what do we do? Yeah, so, you know, I think talking about weight is really honestly not helpful because weight, it should just be a number, you know, it should just be this like faceless, emotionless number. And it's one data point amongst other data points that we're using. And I think as physicians, that's how hopefully most of us see it. We don't look at the weight as only the only thing, you know, there's a lot of factors that we take into account when we're looking at a patient's health. Focusing on the weight, it just has a lot of stigma associated with it societally. 
you know, kids who have larger bodies are bullied and hear mm-hmm. comments about mm-hmm. their bodies from a very young age. And that is extremely damaging to them. So I think focusing on the weight is not helpful. And that's why I always say focus on the behaviors, because if you have a child who is, you know, has on their labs, like your blood sugar is high, you are at risk of developing diabetes in the near future. This is not something that we want for you. What is it that you want for yourself and Mm -hmm. how can we help you to get there? And really kind of bringing them in there, because if you constantly, if they're coming in every time to the pediatrician and they're being told, you need to lose weight, you need to lose weight. That's just a lot of damaging. It's very damaging to how they are feeling about themselves, their self-image, their body image. And adolescence is already right. such a difficult time because our bodies are changing from child's bodies to adult bodies. Things just happen, weight gain, it should. You know, that is normal. And so if we focus on weight, that's where I think we really can see a lot of negative behaviors happening to try to influence that number specifically rather than to try to influence the numbers that we actually care about, which is the blood sugar. And, you know, you don't have to necessarily lose weight to improve your blood sugar numbers. There's other things that you can do with that don't involve weight loss. They may result in weight loss at some point, but rapidly losing weight does not magically improve your blood sugar. There's just general lifestyle behaviors that we can engage in, like mix, having a balanced meal that contains protein with carb, with fiber, rather than a heavy carb meal. That by itself will improve your blood sugar. You know, being more physically active doesn't necessarily mean you're going and killing yourself at the gym for two hours, but you're just more active throughout the day. You take a 10 minute walk after dinner, that improves your blood sugar without necessarily drastically improving your weight. And so when we make weight the focus, that's what I think triggers people to take these more drastic measures because they really want to see that weight number go down because that's what everyone's talking about. Whereas if we shift the focus to the numbers that actually are relevant and important, we can shift behaviors in that direction that are not as disordered. Yeah. So, you know, it sounds like we have to, you know, start parents, pediatricians, really in society, really focusing not so much on weight, but really unhealthy behavior and healthy lifestyle overall. Right. And I think the other piece that I wanted to talk to you was, you know, I always come from my patient that, you know, healthy lifestyle really is that soul. It's really a family effort. I've dealt with pediatric patients with diabetes my entire career. And so sometimes like your parents say, well, it's his diabetes or her diabetes and they need to you know, manage it. And really, I think as far as we're talking about healthy behavior, it's really family behavior and how the family, you know, just things with it, the rest of their lifestyle. Do you have any comments with regards to that or any advice for parents with regards to that? Yeah, absolutely. So so first of all, prediabetes and type 2 diabetes and PCOS, these things are highly genetic. You know, more than likely, if the child is struggling with this, one or both of the parents or another family member has also struggled. And so the child is going to observe what the other family members are doing. And if the other family members are going on crash diets, if they're constantly nitpicking their bodies and talking about how they, you know, how they look too fat or they look too this or too that, the child is going to see themselves in that family member and they're going to take those comments onto themselves. So I think we need to be really mindful of the way that we talk about our own bodies as parents because the kids are picking up on that. And if we're genetically related, we're going to share some body seats, right? You're talking about 
how much you hate a certain aspect of your body, your child sees that same characteristic that they have. And now they hate that about themselves too. So certainly lifestyle is a family affair. Everyone in the family should be striving to follow the lifestyle that they want for their teen to help improve whatever medical issue the teen has going on. But also the commentary and the body image that we have is going to pass down to the child as well. So we just really need to be mindful of that. And again, I think focusing on weight or body size is just not as useful as focusing on what is a healthy behavior that we can, as a family, engage in to improve our overall health rather than I'm trying to lose 10 pounds for this wedding and I'm going to do some crash diet to get there. That's not going to help you with prediabetes in the long term, right? It needs to be a long-term goal. And I think that they need to observe the rest of the family following okay, in the same and the, steps. The, another thing I want to talk to you about, since you brought it up earlier, was the screening for eating disorders. I know you said there are certain scale that pediatricians use, but what about for family? So, you know, say mom or dad, a child has an eating disorder. Are there certain questions that they can or are there certain behaviors that they should pay attention to? that signal the child needs to go in for an evaluation? Yeah, so certainly this is a great question. And so, you know, I think a lot of people think of rapid weight loss or not eating as the big flags for an eating disorder, but there's lots of types of eating disorders and they're all harmful. It's not just the restriction and weight loss that's harmful. So some common behaviors that we'll see, efforts to hide a binge, so maybe like food wrappers or plates or packages, that are hidden in the child's room or like stuffed down into the trash can after a binge, something like that. Purging behavior. So like always going to the bathroom after a meal or complaining about their stomach hurting after a meal and using, you know, using the bathroom or going using some sort of GI medication. Like maybe they're complaining that they're always constipated and they're using more laxatives, those sorts of things. And then I think over-exercising is another compensatory behavior that we see in eating disorders. So if there's like all of a sudden a new interest in exercise and there, there's been a drastic change. So you can have an athlete who's exercising frequently, but if there was a child who was never really that athletic and all of a sudden they've taken interest, but it's gone rapidly from no activity to heavy athletic activity, that could be concerning. And then I think just also some changes that you might see that are not necessarily food related, but just changes in demeanor or in focus on routine, like being very rigid around routines, particularly around mealtimes, or a new interest in like, I'm not eating this type of food anymore. Like maybe they're newly vegetarian, newly vegan, and that's not part of the family's cultural background. Or they're newly avoiding a certain food ingredient, and there's not a medical indication for doing so. You know, those sorts of just rigidity or changes around schedules or meals or foods can also be a sign. And then just changes in demeanor in general, like more more anxious, more depressed, not acting like themselves. Because eating disorders do impact a lot of our mood and our, our behavior around others. And so those sorts of flags are there. And there is, I should mention, the National Eating Disorders Association, NEDA, N-E-D-A, they have a website where they have a free like helpline you can call so like a parent, if they have concerns and they're not sure what to do next, that helpline can help them know kind of next steps. It also has a quiz where you can answer some questions about different behaviors that you've observed and it kind of will score the likelihood of an eating disorder. And it just gives you some background information. But always if a parent has a concern about the child, I think the first step is talking to the pediatrician and, and bringing up that concern. 
And just having the awareness that just because the child is not medically like underweight or of low BMI does not mean that they don't have an eating disorder. It's actually very small percentage of people with eating disorders that are categorized as medically underweight. So any. Yeah. And so, you know, what I see sometimes when they come to see me is that the girls are not having their periods. Right. And so they have, you know, they do have a low BMI and you're saying that may not be as common, but how common are eating disorders? There is roughly, I believe it's about 10 to 20 percent of females will have an eating disorder at some point in their lifetime. I would I would have to look up the exact statistics on that. And it actually is much more common in males than was previously realized as well, just because our screening tool previously were sort of biased towards females or it wasn't really as discussed in males. So it can happen in any gender, any race, any socioeconomic status, any size body increased risk, certainly, and during that time of body change, but can happen at other stages in life as well. Increased risk in the LGBTQ community. So something that we certainly see affecting that community as well. So just something to be mindful of and to be aware of and kind of have eyes out for those red flags. Well, thank you so much. This was so helpful. And I think, you know, my takeaways really are, you know, in our, in my patients, especially with prediabetes, PCOS, diabetes, you know, I always talk to them about healthy behaviors, and I think you validated that, focusing on healthy behaviors, focusing on ways to try to motivate them with regards to what their goals are and how you can help them get there, and really focus on lifestyle overall. So sleep, physical activity, and then really following a lifestyle that the whole family can follow. And I do think it's important for everyone to understand that the eating disorders are and really trying to focus on not talking about weight as much as focusing on behaviors. And that's what I gathered from a lot of our discussion. Is there anything else that you feel like we should know? You know, I think my main my main goal with what I do is, you know, I see so many of these patients later in adulthood after mm-hmm. they've struggled for years and years and years, but that's because they were had some stigma and didn't want to seek care or it was not observed that what they were dealing with was truly an eating disorder. And so my main thing that I want to educate everyone about is that, you know, you can't make assumptions based on how body looks, what behaviors they're engaging in. You know, someone can have very healthy behaviors and a healthy lifestyle and be in a larger body. Some people can be in a smaller body and have very unhealthy behaviors, be very metabolically unhealthy. And someone can have a very dangerous, very serious eating disorder and be in a larger body. And we shouldn't make assumptions or assume that they are just need to lose weight to be healthier. It's a lot more complicated than that. And so I think just under, kind of helping people understand that the risk is there regardless. Okay, of great. Thank you so much. And if people want to find you, how can they find you? Yeah, so I'm on Instagram and TikTok at Rebecca Barron's MD. And then my practice in Houston is called Vita Family Medicine. And I do not treat active eating disorders in my practice. I should mention that the majority of the patients that I see have recovered already and are now in adulthood and maybe still struggling with some of the ongoing issues from that. But patients who are seeking active eating disorder treatment, I do have a great local practice that I refer to for that. And there's some great resources here in Houston. So if someone is experiencing an active eating disorder, I can't treat you, but I can definitely help you. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking the time today. This was so informative and so helpful. And I think this was just one of our just very important lectures that, that I think our parents really are interested in learning about.
disclaimer. The information provided in this podcast is intended for educational and information purposes only. The content is not a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it based on information shared on this podcast. The host, guests, and creators of this podcast do not endorse or promote any specific treatment, product, or medical institution. Reliance on any information provided by this podcast is solely at your own risk.